Welcome to Socially Just Us, where we bring awareness to the social injustices in today's classrooms. I'm Danny Belvin, and this is episode seven of our eight-part series. In this episode, we'll be looking at an incident surrounding students not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance. But before I get into those particulars, I wanted to share a little bit of background on the Pledge of Allegiance itself. So I grew up saying the Pledge of Allegiance in my classrooms from the time that I was in elementary school. And it's one of those things that was just so ubiquitous. It felt so normal. And actually, the Pledge of Allegiance wasn't even adopted by Congress until 1942. And the current wording of the Pledge of Allegiance with that under God added in wasn't established until 1954. And it was put in there during the Cold War really as a way to differentiate us from the atheist Soviet Union. So that means the Pledge of Allegiance, as it's said today in classrooms, has only been said that way for some 65 years. And to me, this was pretty staggering because, I mean, this is within my mother's lifetime that the Pledge of Allegiance has been said this way. Okay, now... To the issue. So back at the beginning of this school year, the 2019-2020 school year, in Jacksonville, Florida, a high school teacher was frustrated with his students not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance during the first couple days of the school year. And so he wrote a message on a whiteboard in his classroom reprimanding students. So the message itself said, Think, we had about half a million Americans die in our civil war, which was largely to get rid of slavery. There are no longer separate water fountains and bathrooms in Jacksonville for white and colored, as Mr. Goodman remembers from the 1960s. We had an amendment to the U.S. Constitution allowing women the right to vote. We have had a black president. The superintendent of Duval Schools is a black woman. Mr. Fluent, our principal, replaced a black man, Mr. Simmons, who is now a DCPS administrator. My point? You are all extremely lucky to be living in the USA. If you refuse to stand for the Pledge of Allegiance or our national anthem, are you revealing maturity and wisdom? Actually, you are displaying the opposite, as some pampered, arrogant celebrities and athletes tend to do. So... The story of this actually broke after being posted on Facebook by a parent of a student. And it should be said that the student was not in this teacher's homeroom class, but she was a student of his later in the day. So I think there are numerous issues and problems with this. So first being the act of telling students that they pretty much have to stand during the Pledge of Allegiance is actually against school policy, state policy, and a federal ruling by the Supreme Court. So first, the federal ruling in 1943, the Supreme Court ruled in the case of 
the West Virginia State Board of Education v. Barnett that students could not be forced to salute the U.S. flag or say the pledge because doing so would violate the First Amendment rights. So that's right off the bat. Since 1943, the year after the Pledge of Allegiance was adopted by Congress, students have had the right to not say the Pledge of Allegiance. Also, both the state, as I mentioned, Florida State Statute 1003.44 and the school board policy, the Duval School District, does allow students to not participate in reciting the pledge, including not needing to stand for the pledge, though both of those policies do require a note from a parent or guardian stating that that's their wish. So because of that, and because of the controversy surrounding this message, the teacher was suspended. And unfortunately, I I wasn't able to find any sort of follow-up to this in the reporting because It seems like in this case and in the case of a lot of this sort of reporting, we see the initial reaction, but we don't often see the follow up. So I think just from that point of view, school policy legally, it makes sense. I think the larger problems aren't really solved by suspending a teacher. There are a number of issues that I'll go through. So the next issue is the fact that he was in a position of power. Just by being a teacher in a classroom, we know we have a certain level of power over our students, right? To me, it feels like this was an incident of using his power to attack students. And in fact, telling the students how they should feel about the Pledge of Allegiance is pretty troubling, particularly as a white man. And this was something that was stated by parents and by the media in response to this, is that the message itself feels like it's targeting black kids and women or girls because of the language, because of the references to slavery, the references to women getting the vote, and all of those things. To me, this message seems full of white rage. And there's a lot of good resources that talk about this idea of white rage. I do have a a short quote from a book by Carol Anderson called White Rage, The Unspoken Truth of Our Racial Divide. She states, The trigger of white rage inevitably is black advancement. It is not the mere presence of black people that's the problem. Rather, it is blackness with ambition, with drive, with purpose, with aspirations, and with demands for full and equal citizenship. So this is kind of something to keep in mind. He's he's kind of turning this on its head a little bit as he's using examples of Barack Obama being the president of of the principal of the superintendent as black people who have power being indicative of general power by black people within society, which we can easily see is, is a little bit problematic. It isn't necessarily the truth. It's putting ideation on certain individuals and saying that it's indicative of social problems being solved. So that's a little hard. And the wording of you're extremely lucky and this feeling throughout that you should be grateful 
for living in the U.S. Uh, is part of part of the problem and part of the breakdown, I think, of cultural competency within this. So cultural competency, this idea of understanding other cultures and other people is really important in all aspects of society, but it's it's particularly a necessity for teaching. In Bettina Love's book, We Want to Do More Than Survive, Abolitionist Teaching in the Pursuit of Educational Freedom, she talks about kind of the, the racial breakdown within schools, both teachers and students. She says that researchers have found that students of color make up the majority of public school enrollment, while white students make up more than half of the nation's overall enrollment. Most white students attend a school where three quarters of their peers are white, too. Currently, currently, less than two percent of teachers are black men. White men and women make up more than 80 percent of the teaching force. So this tells us that a lot of teachers tend to be white and the majority of students tend to not. And a majority of white students who become these white teachers come from situations where most of their peers are white. So this means that cultural competency for understanding people of color from a white perspective has to be something that is actively sought out. It is not something that they necessarily have grown up around. And when you're forcing somebody else to look at things from your perspective, you're missing part of the issue. And I think that is something we see reflected within this, within this statement on the board. It's very much from his perspective, written in a way that the student should see it in the exact same way. But that is not the case. Finally, another big issue and perhaps the largest issue in play here, even though the race issue is is quite significant, is the fact that it's not a conversation, right? And it feels a little funny saying, pretty much saying a monologue in this way where it's not a conversation. But to me, it seems that writing a message like this on the board instead of having an actual spoken dialogue with his students seems like a missed opportunity. And moreover, it seems cowardly, particularly when he is the person with the power within the classroom and not engaging the students. And I couldn't help but think about considering an incident that was also in Florida earlier this year, earlier in 2019, where a Florida student, he was 11 years old, a sixth grader, was arrested for causing a disturbance was the official reason because he would not stand for the pledge after stating that he felt that the American flag symbolized discrimination against black people. And he had a substitute teacher in his classroom. The substitute teacher was upset and essentially said, if you don't like it here, go back to where you came from. And the student replied, do you mean Africa? And then the substitute teacher replied, yes. The student then replied, you're our teacher. You should not be talking to students this way. And at that point, security was called. So I'm not saying that there will be necessarily a positive outcome from vocalizing these these issues. But I think 
when I say conversation, it implies a certain level of openness and willingness on both sides. And certainly you can't control the way that your students will receive things, but you can control the way that you receive things and the way that you respond to things as a teacher in the classroom. with these sorts of things that come up in the classroom is that teachers are not paid to indoctrinate our students. And in fact, there was another case very recently uh, in October of 2019, where a New Jersey educator, uh, junior high or a New Jersey educator middle school was under scrutiny for taking a knee during uh, the homeroom pledge. And in this case, um, this, this educator was also removed from the homeroom classroom and given something else to do during homeroom time because parents reacted so negatively to this. I think for me, the key difference in that case as opposed to the Florida case is that um, the teacher who wrote on the whiteboard in Florida was telling his students how they should feel, whereas the New Jersey teacher was expressing his own personal feelings. And I know that that, that can be problematic um, within the classrooms as well. But I think to a certain extent, when we're talking about uh, forming real relationships with students. I think particularly in this case and in many cases, why conversation is important is because he, at the end of the day, he didn't know why these students were not standing. And it could have been a variety of things. Yes, it could be the students are influenced by celebrity or athlete culture, which seemed to be his big issue. Yes, it could be due to the larger national conversation about not valuing black lives and ultimately brown lives and other minority lives. It could be because many people, particularly once they hit their teenage years, start to find the Pledge of Allegiance a, a little bit creepy, I guess, for lack of a better word. It's this act of standing and placing your hand over your heart and looking at a flag and pledging allegiance to it. And I think in particular, going back to this idea of feeling like your country isn't valuing your life, it's difficult to do such a thing. And it's something that's not really done in a lot of other countries. I taught in Japan and in the classroom, there is no Pledge of Allegiance. There are no flags. And in fact, within an entire school year, the only time that I heard the national anthem was for graduation. So it was played once and it was kind of a special circumstance. So I think... If the Pledge of Allegiance isn't something that's innate to humanity, and if we're having students who are coming from different countries and different backgrounds, then perhaps it makes them uncomfortable. And I think that that's okay. Who are we to decide what our students' level of comfort should be? And there could be a, a variety of other reasons. Like the students might just not feel like standing up. And in that case, yes, have a conversation and figure out why. Or... In, in my case, I actually got into trouble with a, a teacher 
when I was in high school for not standing during the Pledge of Allegiance. And that was my senior year of high school was the year that we entered the we started the Iraq war and I felt very strongly about it and I did not feel comfortable standing for the Pledge of Allegiance when I felt that the flag was representing ideals and actions that were not in line with my own and things that felt imperialistic to me in that moment. And this was during my homeroom class, which was an economics teacher, and he was a vet. He had served in the army, I believe, and he yelled at me for not standing for the pledge. And I calmly explained why. And he just got increasingly angry. So I think this is something that has been going on for a long time. And and I think as a a woman of color who has lived a similar experience, I tend to sympathize a bit more with the students in this situation. But ultimately, at the end of the day, I can hope that the teacher didn't have bad intentions by doing this. I just think that the steps that he took weren't necessarily the right steps. And we can't always be expected to take the right steps in every situation. So I would say if you are faced with a similar situation, students not standing for the Pledge of Allegiance, there's a a variety of solutions of steps that you can take, right? The first step, I think, would be to check the policy. Think about, do you agree or disagree with this policy and why? And that why is really crucial because even though this seems like it's about the students, it is equally about the teacher. So checking the policy, taking that internal stock And I know it requires deep understanding of your own values and ideas in a way that perhaps you hadn't thought about before. At the end of the day, being aware of those things is important because then you can be aware of your own biases within the classroom. And of course, you shouldn't be using your own ideas to indoctrinate students. Next, you should definitely check your privilege and your power in the situation in which you're in. And I think examining it from a racial standpoint is important, but also just remembering that within the hierarchy, the social dynamic of a school, even if you don't feel like it in the moment, you have a certain amount of power over your students. So not abusing that power is important. And finally, the most important solution, I think, is opening up the conversation. And this is in a homeroom, so it feels like it's the perfect opportunity and place to open up a conversation. But I don't think it necessarily has to be related to the topic within the class itself. You can set aside some time to understand where your students are coming from. A lot of this is coming from a couple of core ideas. One is this idea of abolitionist teaching that uh, Bettina Love talks a lot about within her book. And the other is this idea of authentic care. In her words, abolitionist teaching is built on the cultural wealth of students' communities and creating classrooms in parallel with those communities aimed at facilitating interactions where people matter to each other, fight together in the pursuit of creating a home place that represents their hopes and dreams and resist oppression 
all while building a new future. And quite honestly, I feel like this is an idea that a lot of teachers could pretty effortlessly get behind, at least in theory. In practice, it takes a lot more work. And authentic care is this idea of actually building real relationships with students and caring for them in an authentic way, in a deep and meaningful way. And Jeffrey M.R. Duncan Adrade talks about this in his article entitled Note to Educators, Hope Required When Growing Roses in Concrete. To provide the authentic care that students require from us as a precondition for learning from us, we must connect our indignation over all forms of oppression with an audacious hope that we can act to change them. Hokey Hope would have us believe this change will not cost us anything. This kind of false hope is mendacious. It never acknowledges pain. Audacious hope stares down the painful path, and despite the overwhelming odds against us, making it down that path to change, we make that journey again and again. There is no other choice. Acceptance of this fact allows us to find the courage and the commitment to cajole our students to join us on that journey. This makes us better people, as it makes us better teachers, and it models for our students that the painful path is the hopeful path. So ultimately, I think when faced with these difficult issues in the classroom, we need to really embody these practices of abolitionist teaching in authentic care. So I'll be sure to include the resources mentioned in the show notes, and please be sure to check out the other seven parts to our eight-part series. Thanks. Bye. 